Okay, well, well, hello and uh, welcome to the new year. I am really excited about uh, this this current podcast. Uh, you know, we've all probably indulged a bit too much over the last uh, few weeks, and I'm joined by uh, just another peripatetic mind. He is a doctor, a physician, a clinician, a researcher. Uh, he writes a newsletter like I do, and of course, he has a podcast. And he's been on the show uh, before when we were talking about how AI might change the healthcare industry and the practice of medicine. So I'm really happy to be joined by Eric Topol, a professor, a cardiologist, uh, an author, and amongst many other things. Eric, Happy New Year to you. Oh, Azim, it's great to be with you again. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, you, you know, it's been four years, and so we have a chance also to look back on what we thought might be uh, <laughs> happening, which is great in our business, because we do, both of us, sort of occasionally forecast. Now, I'm in my gym gear. You can maybe see this uh, mm. because, Eric, I live in my gym gear now uh, because medicine has become health and health has become health span. And that means I have to do three sessions of zone two cardio a week and a couple of sessions of zone five. And I do three sessions of weight. And it's just so much easier to live in my gym gear. We're thinking very differently some of us are increasingly so about health uh, now compared to say you know 25 years ago could you maybe characterize what that change has been in, in over your sort of c career as well because things feel like they are not just better therapies and you know more advanced diagnostics but there's a, a different way that we're thinking about this well there are many factors that have changed uh over these decades um notably there's so much more data on any given individual uh, we have an aging population, so just by nature of that, there's a lot more complexity. But what's a, a real challenge, uh, Azim, as you know, is that the amount of time we have with patients has markedly uh, truncated. So we have more complexity, less time, which is a recipe for more errors and less of a patient-doctor relationship, which is eroded greatly over uh, the last few decades, especially when we had this transition uh, for clinicians to become data clerks to uh, basically work on their electronic health record rather than what used to be the case, which was, uh, you know, very close eye to eye contact and a much more intimate uh, presence uh, when uh, a clinician and patient came together. Mm. I, I mean, that that is definitely uh sort of something that we'd recognize as patients, right? You've given the clinician's uh, perspective. And in some sense, we can understand how that em emerges because the the family physician, we call them the GP in the UK, the general practitioner, um, would resolve so much more of the issues we would take to them, certainly when I was a child, because there were there were fewer specialisms around, right? There were just, they were just not... Um, some of the specialisms that exist today uh, were were not to be found even in in the most advanced uh, hospitals. So I, I I suppose that there's there is one part where once people start you start going through the specialist route, which the improved science gives us, you do end up with having to you know join the dots with through data, the handover from one physician to you know to to the next. But but I guess you're telling saying there's something more that is that is happening that ju than just making that more sophisticated process work? 
Exactly. And there's just so many layers of data, too, that uh, you just can't hand over because they're not even in the patient's record. You know, things like uh, a genome or sensor data or environmental data. So, you know, what we have is the ability to capture uh, multimodal data uh, on any given individual. But uh, our ability to actually get our arms around it is compromised. Yeah. And, but what about patients? I mean, how are patients thinking differently uh, about their health? I, I noticed on your book, but uh, your bookshelves behind you, apart from your own excellent book, Deep Medicine, which uh, is still very relevant and people should go and buy, you have Outlive by Peter Atiyah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, and of course, that presents, I think, in a way, a different way of looking at, you know, the purpose of health and, and health outcomes. I found it quite helpful because I had been thinking along those lines for a while. And of course, when, when an author goes off and does the deep thinking and turns it into a book, it helps you. And it helped me frame my health challenge as um, I, I want to be at least as physically strong and cognitively able when I'm 80 as I am today when I'm 52. Uh, and and in order to do the reason, reasons are simple. Uh, I have enough grumbles with my back <laughs> today. I don't really want them to get worse. And, and I want to be able to lift up my, my grandkids, uh, assuming mm -hmm. they are not robots. Um, and and so, so in order to do that, I can sort of see where I need to get to. And, and in the last five years, I, I reframed the way I thought about what is my relationship with the thing that I called the doctor and health and turned it into one that was about, this is where I need to be in 30 years. What are the things that will upset upset that journey? Um, you know, and I can go into more detail in you know later. But but I'm just curious about whether that is a, 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 a an increasingly common framing of how individuals think about their their health. I think this is uh, one of the most important movements of our time, Azim, which is promoting healthy aging. Uh, Peter's book got into that. Some of it was quite good, as you alluded to. Some of it I thought was really not backed up by evidence, and I challenged him on that. But nonetheless, overall, we have powerful tools. I know we're going to discuss some of these uh, to promote aging, some of which has to be self-initiated, like you mentioned, the strengthening and uh, promoting cognitive function. But some of it will be available that wasn't you know, previously uh, part of our, our the tools that we could use. So, you know, I think the potential for any given individual to take more charge and to promote their healthy aging is going to be a very big, um, uh, you know, topic, uh, you know, that we didn't really have primary prevention of illnesses before. That was right. a fantasy. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, simple things. Like, you know, I give Peter credit. Uh, he really raised the issue about lack of protein in our diet, especially as we get older. Right. Uh, and the fact that these crazy recommendations by governments are completely out of line with what the data uh, and evidence shows. So, you know, I think, you know, we're learning more about healthy aging that's going to help us. And it's just a matter of, you know, how are people going to tune in? Are they going yep. to take more... Uh, charge on this because the opportunity uh, to live a longer, healthier life is unquestionably going to be one of the options we have. 
and, and it uh, involves uh, six lean chicken breasts a day, uh, <laughs> as well as 35 different plants. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go long on chicken farms, uh, is my view. Um, I mean, it, it, is, it is a really fascinating um, uh, shift. Uh, my, my dad uh, passed away last uh, year, and he was, mm. um, I should know this off the top of my head, he was 87. Mm. Uh, and um, what was fascinating was that he vastly outlived his life expectancy because he was born in 1935 to a small landowner on the fringes of what is now the Punjab in Pakistan, right near the Indian border. So you're born at rural, not even urban, and his family migrated to the cities, uh, and probably his life expectancy at birth was 40 or 45, maybe 50. And he got an extra, you know, 37 years to that. Um, he had some cognitive decline. He had really quite severe sort of physical frailty. Um, but up until the last seven or eight years, I would say, he was still had sort of sufficient flourishing. And of course, you know, in his generation, we didn't we we hadn't all been through that curve where we can look at the ages of you know 30 50 60 70 and see another you know 20 to 80 years uh, ahead of us depending on you know where where you are and and so i guess that that's what creates um both a, a public health uh priority but also a sort of individual awareness of what do i need to do how can i um you know diagnose evaluate prescribe in the broader sense and then uh, comply so that I can still be functional in my case in my 60s 70s uh, you know 80s and and hope and hopefully beyond that and and I think that that is a really you know sociologically that's kind of fundamental because we're only going back one generation where people were actually surprised by the length of the lives that they they led absolutely uh, I couldn't agree with you more um, I think the, the the important concept here is understanding lifespan and health span, because if you can have uh, health span and, and lifespan correlate uh, tightly, uh, and so you don't have uh, any significant cognitive decline or quality of life, that's really the goal. So, uh, you know, just having prolonging lifespan, longevity, which of course is uh, fixation among many billionaires today and many companies. Mm. Uh, that's not exactly the ticket. That's not the goal, of course. But I do think um, that we will approximate that, you know, these will con converge these goals over time if we push on the things that we're starting to see now in terms of, you know, it really would be considered some, some breakthroughs in, in, in science across many domains of life science. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, my um, uh, uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who who is a little bit older than me, and, and he's had um, uh, uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, as a sort of for, for fifteen years or something, and and I, I asked him about what he's done in terms of testing for his his microbiome, and actually, it hadn't kind of crossed his path. And of course, it hadn't crossed his doctor's paths as well, because it was only in 2001, I think that the term was, was, uh, was mm. coined, uh, the microbiome. And the science is very, very young. And it hasn't, at least in the UK, really made its way consistently in the diagnostic and treatment pathways. And that's a great example of a 
a brand new piece of science. We've discovered that there's an entire universe inside our gut that that is really important. We don't understand. There's, there's more. I think there's more genetic variation between my microbiome and your microbiome and my mum's microbiome than there is um, in our in our you know main genome. Right. That there's more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's. A, oh, well, that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. To your point, uh, no, I'm just going to say, you know, long COVID is a vexing condition. And the very first and only randomized trial to show improvement, marked improvement in symptoms across the board was a microbiome manipulation trial recently. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're learning so much about all the different omics, but the microbiome is, is one of those really exciting frontiers that we are starting now to be able to engineer uh, so that is going to be a way to control the immune system and inflammation. And it, it carries over to many different organ system conditions that we'll be able to either better treat or prevent uh, a, an illness from ever occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, um, that's very true. And you've said the word uh, omics, actually, which, of course, is yet more data that we're going to have to contend with when we when we talk about um, uh, uh, AI um, and, uh, and 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 so on. Um, I, and then, you know, one of the things that had also occurred to me has been is that the the relationship that people may have had with their physician uh, 10 or 15 years ago can can start to change. So I I, ju I just started a program where, um, you know, my my doctor uh, put me through, a, you know, full body MRI, a CPET mm. test, mm. a load of bloods, um, calcium scoring on my uh, heart. Uh, I guess that's just the CT with the dye, um, DEXA scans for my body fat. Please don't ask about that. They did that after Christmas. I mean, it's a really that's super mean. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, from, from that, you know, a lot of the prescriptions that have come out of it have not been, a, have not been, you know, take this pill, um, and, uh, you know, take this injection. They have been about exercise particular forms and sort of other, other types of, of things. And, and of course I'm in a privileged position because this was a friend of mine and he kind of was running this thing and we sort of got it, got it going. But do you think that type of holistic scanning of a person is something that the healthcare system can can provide or ought to be providing in in some way yeah this is um something that is getting you know some traction among the uh, affluenza folks but really right. there's no evidence i mean the problem with the total body mri is it does pick up a lot of false positives. So sure. you, some people wind up getting, you know, biopsies of their liver or their lung or, you know, where there's nodules, uh, oftentimes they're benign, but, you know, the, the procedures and the anxiety and the cost and, you know, uh, the yield, it just hasn't been proven. That is the net benefit. And in fact, if you're concerned about cancer, uh, to pick it up on a scan, um, it, it means, you know, that that cancer is is no longer microscopic, which you might have a better chance. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's got billions of cells now. And, and uh, wouldn't it be better if we had a blood test like we're seeing these, you know, of course, many liquid biopsy tests, which are similarly not 
uh, got firm evidence of their value in healthy people. But right. the one scan that I'm intrigued about um, that I think we should use more uh, broadly that you got, the DEXA scan. Yeah. The DEXA scan is really, uh, it's, in, it's inexpensive. And it provides not just about your bone density, but it tells you about your, your fat um, and subcutaneous visceral fat. And the other thing, which is striking, just a paper just came out from the uh, company that's an AI drug discovery company called Incitro. Mm. And the DEXA scan was the most valuable test to tell you about your liver uh, for being able to uh, pick up the uh, fatty liver um, problem, uh, now known as MASH uh, or yeah. MAFLD. So um, this is amazing that a, a test in the U.S. that runs about $100, $150 can have such a high yield. And it's not one that's giving false positives, but rather giving new insights you can't get. I mean, yeah. as you know very well, uh, body mass index, BMI, is a terrible uh, index with all sorts of false under and over diagnoses of obesity. On the other hand, if we could get DEXA scans uh, yeah. more widely, we'd have a quantitative metric. And, you know, with the new ways we can intervene with uh, obesity, uh, no less keep an eye on bone density and also track the liver, which we're not doing enough of. So many millions of people have undiagnosed mash. Uh, a fatty yeah. liver. So, you know, I think that's one scan that uh, because it's low cost and it doesn't have this false positive problem uh, would be of more value, but it just hasn't ever gotten popular in the medical community. Yeah, it's very true. It's also a really painless scan. So the, the problem with any MRI, especially if you're me, is that I, I immediately fantasize about being in a coffin thrown over over the side of a, the Titanic uh, and I'm pulling, hitting the emergency panic button every you know, minutes, uh, and uh, and it's expensive. It's uncomfortable. I was actually okay in the end with my last uh, MRI, um, but but the DEXA scans, which I, I've done a few of, are really painless. They're really quick, um, and you get you do get that really useful information. So um, and and you know, at a hundred bucks, so they're about the same sort of price in the UK. You, you know what you could do one every year or every couple of years, and you could start to see progress. And I actually also found that my really cheap um, knockoff bioimpedance scales mm. correlate really, really closely to changes in the body fat measurement of my DEXA. I mean, they give the wrong number. I mean, they're always sort of 2% under, but effectively they, 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 they follow the trend. So I can effect check my overall body fat daily at home uh, if, if I need to. It, but you know, when you start to look at this, it, it starts to, what it starts to do is um, raise the amount of data that is kind of being tracked, the number of biomarkers that are being being tracked. And I think there is this kind of balance between, um, you know, what should be, how long should we, how long should we wait, right? We, we as, as consumers are, have access to better information. We also have access to better tools. Um, you know, anyone who's used Google spreadsheets has probably got something that's better than an EHR system in many hospitals. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and so should we, how much of this, do we start to push towards the consumer because they've got the Apple Watch or the Fitbit, because they can afford a 150 buck DEXA scan so that they can start to take more 
you know, re responsibility? Is that, the, is, is that something that can happen through health systems or is that just going to be something that is a privilege of those who care about it and have the resources to engage in it? Yeah, great question, um, Azim. I think the problem here, of course, is the, the health systems can't do it because they don't have a home for data like sensors or genome or microbiome. Uh, so it's really going to be, this is, I think, that concept of the virtual health coach with AI, multimodal AI, to bring in all these layers of data and uh, help coach an individual uh, regarding uh, how to better manage a condition that's already cropped up or one that, you know, might uh, be at high risk for that person. So I think that's where we're headed now that we've seen the likes of uh, GPT-4 and, yeah. of course, where all this is headed. You know, I think al already the concept that a person would have uh, the virtual medical assistant um, is, is, you know, something, of course, as we discussed four years ago. Uh, but now I think we're, it's emerging. We're not there yet. We have uh, unimodal, like for diabetes, or we have for depression. Um, you know, we have a few uh, hypertension, but we don't have a holistic coach yet. And that's where, you know, over the next few years, we'll see that emerging. The, yes, when we met uh, a few years ago, I think one of your lines was that AI could restore the care in healthcare. And, and as you look, on from four years, of course, we had COVID and it came in and it sped up a lot of things and it, it slowed down some other things. Um, oh, do, you know, are we still, do you still believe that? Are we still on that path? Are we ahead of where you thought we might be? Well, we're always behind where we could be. That's one of the themes I've seen over many decades now, unfortunately, because the medical community is, is resistant to change. COVID didn't help, uh, if anything. Well, in some ways, it, it, it pushed forward things like telehealth and hospital at home because of desperate need. But in terms of what we're talking about, uh, independent of um, the pandemic, it was really the, the transformer model of AI and the eventuality of, you know, chat GPT's development and, and now a lot more of these the, the term large language model will soon be obsolete because it's not just about language anymore. It's about any form of data, any mode. But this uh, is, I think, the accelerant, which the medical community will resist as it does with every change. But it could be, you know, we're on a, a rescue path. If you look at where this can take us uh, as uh, aligned with our unmet and, and desperate needs in medicine. So that's why I think uh, this is an inevitability and hopefully we can figure out how to embrace it and, and get our arms around the potential downsides, which of course there are many. Yeah, no, there are, there are. I mean, we have to figure out, um, I mean, we'll get to certainly get into the downsides. Now, now this conversation is gonna be available to your readers at, uh, at Ground Truths as well. So I'd love to also know what are the questions about AI that they really care about? I mean, what could I kind of contribute to help them thinking through some of these, these questions as well? Yeah, I mean, I think there are many skeptics. Um, you know, and recently, I had a great opportunity to interview uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who mm -hmm. many refer to as the godfather of AI. And he said, you know, with all the negatives of AI that he, he, he sounded the alarms. And I think, uh, you know, he's highly regarded as 
someone who uh, has been a great proponent of deep neural networks for quite a long time. But here he's saying, I'm seeing things I've never seen before and I'm worried. But interestingly, he compartmentalized healthcare and medicine as being the one area which is so uh, extraordinary uh, and relatively safe. It's not the kind of thing where, you know, the, the doomsdayers and the, the real negativism comes out. So I, I think there's that perspective that shouldn't be missed here is that we're not talking about, you know, all the worries of uh, artificial general intelligence and, uh, you know, somehow uh, the AI taking over the world. We're, we're talking about fixing medicine. Nonetheless, there are worries about all the, um, the mistakes and everyone who has used ChatGPT or any of the other models will know that, you know, sometimes you get really great stuff and sometimes you get just total, you know, BS. It's fabricated or completely off track. So this is what worries, I think, people in the medical community. I don't know about your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that um, uh, the one of the challenges with, with GPT-4 and ChatGPT is that they are... Um, they're so kind of persuasive and seductive uh, out, out, out of the box. And the, the thing is that really what they are is a, they're part of a final product. They're, they're like if you've got a, a gasoline car, they're the engine. Um, but you still need a drive shaft and a steering wheel and indicator lights and seat belts and wheels and a brake. And, and we, we've, we've been presented with these technologies um, and there's something quite curious about them. I've talked to a lot of the computer scientists who built them, and they, they say we don't really know how they ended up as they are. I mean, we know the physical steps we went through, and we knew what we did to the computers. But we don't know how they ended. We, they got to where they are. So we have this sort of uncertain thing that is quite seductive and persuasive, but in reality, it's actually only a component of a finished final product. And, and I think that what we will... Um, we will start to do to address the, um, the, the the weaknesses, you know, the strange hallucinations um, that, that go on or the, the, the things that it makes up um, will be essentially the same sorts of things that we did to cars to make internal combustion engines useful. So we connected them to drive shafts. We gave them brakes. I mean, brakes are wonderful. Brakes, people think of brakes as slowing down the car, but actually brakes enable you to drive faster. As someone who once had to drive his car, a rental car with shot brake pads uh, to a garage, I know how slowly you drive when the brakes don't work. So, so what we have to do is we have to manage the excitement that we've had of this component technology, which seems to be a fully fledged thing, and recognize that actually it's part of a more complex software architecture, uh, Eric, that will, that will make this thing factually robust. It will make it, um, uh, you know, very, very, uh, much, much more reliable than the, the thing that we currently deal with. I mean, what we have today is a, it's a stochastic technology, which means you are rolling a set of dice every time you ask it a question. Um, and humans are variable, but they're not as variable as all of that. And doctors are not as variable as all of that when they're in the clinical setting. So I, I think that that you know, for your readers in Ground Truth, that one of the key things is to recognize that um, when technologies come out 
uh, and you've seen lots of them come out over your career and I, and I have over mine, the scientists and technologists get excited because they see the potential and that excitement can get picked up as something we can use today widely, which isn't necessarily the, the case. And so I would expect over the next year or two for us to actually see really interesting, really powerful products, proper products, at the heart of which will be GPT-4 or some multi other multimodal system that have, you know, I don't want to get too technical here, but will we'll have the, you know, the retrieval augmented generation, they will have the, um, uh, the anchoring of, res uh, of, of the responses back to highly reliable uh, databases of curated information. And that's when you'll start to get to uh, the point where we can even test these things and say, are they actually good enough to be put in the hands of, of, of professionals, let alone clinicians, right? They're, these are the guys who should have the best technology, not you know, the thing you get for free on Bing. <laughs> right. I mean, that I think perspective is, is essential because most would agree that this, well, your metaphor is perfect about the engine without the steering wheel and the brakes and whatnot. But uh, most would agree that we will have a far better uh, uh, way to prevent hallucinations, confabulations and errors over time. Uh, and that we should be planning on that because that's where it is headed indeed. It will, they'll never be eliminated, but the ability to double check whether it to be, you know, re-enter or, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to get around this problem. The most important thing in medicine is we're never going to have a situation where humans are not in the loop. You know, you're not going to make a critical decision about uh, a diagnosis or uh, a treatment to someone that's you know important. That's not something lightweight without some kind of uh, oversight by uh, a clinician. So this is why you know it's different. One thing, if you know, if you're writing a paper and you get references from GPT four and they're made up, you know, right. and you, you can check, you can look and say, oh no, they don't even exist. What's going on here? Another thing is you get some you know really uh, unusual output and you say, no, this this doesn't compute. Uh, but you're the doctor and you're looking after this patient. So this is another reason why, um, you know, I, I am very optimistic that uh, we're still in the early uh, era of these yeah. uh, transformer multimodal models. They're just going to keep getting better. Uh, and that's something that, you know, instead of waiting for that, uh, there's many things that we can do right now that are extraordinary transformative uh, improvements that don't bring up this worry about the, the error. Yeah, that's true. I, I think one, one example is just help assisting note-taking. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you, you know, I think that there are already products that are out there that will they'll transcribe alongside a doctor's own notes, uh, the, the patient, uh, patient interview, uh, or uh, interview, God, I'm, not, I'm so, <laughs> but the, the patient appointment. Uh, right, uh, and, right. Um, and, and, you know, that seems like it's, it's low-hanging fruit. Um, but one of the things I, I think is quite challenging is that, you know, we, we don't really know what the performance of these systems is. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw this paper recently, but Microsoft showed that if you can do good prompting of GPT-4, it would do better on medical questions than these specialized 
transformer models like BioGPT and, and MedPalm. And, and my point there, I guess, is, is less about, um, oh, GPT-4 is so good. It's more about the fact that this was, a, this was surprising because we don't have a good theory of these underlying transformer models as to why they work as well as they work. I mean, we, we, we know more now than we did two years ago because people have been looking at it, but we still don't have that good good theory. And that feels, um, that feels a little bit slippery, especially in this sort of sophisticated world that we now have of um, uh, when you want to try and get a, uh, you know, a therapy approved um, in, in Europe or in the US and the kind of the, the levels of proof you need to, to go on. Um, we, we used lots of medicines like salicylic acid before we knew what their mechanisms were. But today, and we still don't know their mechanism. We still don't know them. And <laughs> anesthetics, right? And so on, right? So, yeah. so to, but today, I, I don't think it's really possible to put out a a new sophisticated like biologic without and say to the FDA, we have no idea how it works. We kind of just knew it. It, it did, right? It just it, it it doesn't make sense to our kind of com common standards. And I wonder whether that's going to be a a challenge for actually scaling out these transformers, you know, given, given their, their sort of inexplicability at the moment. Well, you just brought up a lot there, uh, Azim. Sorry, I that. uh, not surprising. No, there were three major fronts that you just brought up. One was um, how do these, you know, frontier models like uh, OpenAI GPT-4 outperform medically tweaked models uh, right. like MedPalm? And, you know, we don't know. But also, as I think we need to emphasize, the transparency is lacking of uh, the frontier. That's the term for these closed source models. Right. We don't even know the content that's in them. But um, the medically tweaked are, are obviously only the de minimis. It's not the whole corpus of medical knowledge. It's not up to date. It's, you know, who knows? There hasn't really been the, the, the supervised fine tuning medically of any model that we would say is is you know comprehensive and, and up to the moment, so that's still kind of open uh, uh, as to as to why uh, there, this frontier model exceeded, and and I think uh, it's really fascinating. Now another thing you brought up, I don't want to lose this, is that this ambient conversation between the patient and doctor mm. to have that note, a synthetic note which is far better than any notes that previously existed in medicine generally. And the only difference is that the doctor has to articulate the physical exam, which otherwise not might not have, have occurred. Now, what happens with this note? It isn't just that you have this great note. It's now this automated uh, note. There's so many different levels of benefit. For one, there's now an audio file that's indexed to the note linked. So that when the patient uh, goes home and forgets what was being discussed or was confused, they can go look exactly at what was said. Uh, and also it can be put into whatever level of education or language that you would, that you would like through um, the large language model. But that's just the beginning. Mm. What it also does is it does all the work of the clinician to preempt the data clerk stuff like pre-authorization, which is a big issue here in the U.S., 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we ha- it's uh, the follow appointments, uh, tests, uh, procedures, uh, billing, <laughs> another problem that may not be in the UK. Uh, but, you know, it does all this stuff. And it even will we'll go to the patient to nudge them about, uh, did you uh, check your blood pressure? Uh, right. You know, whatever was discussed. Now, one other thing, which I did not anticipate, and when we spoke uh, years ago, which is promoting empathy. So this is getting really fast uh, pickup in many health systems in the U.S. because there there are many different uh, versions of it. But what's fascinating is that the the note uh, is now used by uh, the large language model to detect the level of empathy of the doctor. Why did you interrupt the patient so quickly? Why didn't you express... Uh, some uh, uh, sensitivity to the patient or listen to their concern. Uh, you know, so we're, we're having a whole nother, I didn't ever expect, direct promotion of empathy, even though the large language model doesn't even know what empathy is. It's just obviously been trained by human content. So this is a biggie, and it's the, it's the near term it doesn't require a regulatory review. It is being the, the physicians who've used the good systems are saying, I'm not going back. They're saving hours a day of not having to work at keyboards and be a, a, a data slave uh, entry. So, you know, this is this is the near term bonus of AI that a lot of people are not in medicine that a lot of people are not aware of. That That's, um, you know, what what's fascinating about both of those examples is that that has already been widely consumerized. You know, when ChatGPT came out back in in November, one of the things that people would do would be to say, you know, here is a really boring extract from a a statute. Write it so a five year old can understand it, or you know, make it funnier but keep the keep the meaning. Uh, turn it into rap, and you know, that's that was use case number one for ChatGPT. And we we, as you say, we have already solved that and 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 have have figured that out and we've we eat and this the the tone evaluation which i hadn't come across of course has been a long-standing generative ai um capability even before chat gpt there were these uh products aimed at the other end of um uh, of human utility at, at the sort of social media copywriters um to help them write their copy uh, you know, as if they were, an, uh, uh, you know, an expert or as if they were a comedian. And it's the same set of technologies that is queuing up the doctors to whether they're being, you know, empathetic or not. Uh, I mean, that's really, really interesting. And I think that also um, is a surprise going back to our conversation four years ago, because four years ago, what we were saying is the patient is going to get a better experience because the doctor will have more time mm-hmm. and the machine will always be this cold clinical thing. And that's why doctors won't get replaced because the machine will be cold and clinical and humans need hugs. Um, and, and what we've discovered is that even for the squishiest and loveliest of physicians, um, the large language model can still coach them to give them greater empathy. Yes. Yeah, so I think there is a surprise that we, you know, sort of a black swan actually that we, we probably could never have predicted. Yeah, I certainly uh, never thought of it. Just uh, as you say, uh, the gift of time was the theme of what we could get, which is still we're going to have. 
but this uh, uh, component of machine promoting empathy was one that I had never envisioned. And it, it's exciting to see it in action. And I wouldn't be surprised is that it'll be instead of just education requirements for clinicians in the future, there'll be a, a, a coaching requirement of having your, your visits reviewed that you're sufficiently empathetic and communicative. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll see where this goes, but it's in the early stages as well. So, so my model for that is essentially to, um, to say, you know, that's obviously, that's obviously desirable, right? It's desirable for any professional to have some kind of ongoing professional review. It was just too expensive, right? pre-chat GPT, where you couldn't go off and send your audio recordings to humans to listen to and, uh, and, and give, you, give you feedback. Um, and so what, what's happened is the AI has dropped the cost of doing that, and so we'll now do it uh, really, really extensively. It'll be, be, become a norm. It does remind me a little bit of what is happening in autonomous driving as well. So, you know, within autonomous driving, the dream was... Uh, you know, the robo car that will take you from New York to LA. And, you know, you can just, um, I'm sure as you would peruse the New England Journal of Medicine and the BMJ and Lancet uh, uh, for, the, for those hours. Um, and of course, we're, we're quite far away from autonomous vehicles, but the, the AI systems that have been built for them with the sensors are like better versions of anti-lock brakes. And so you're starting to see regulations change for for, for vehicles, for future vehicles, that they, they will increasingly need to have not self-driving, but technology that is in a similar path to make them safer, drive, better driver uh, situational awareness, better braking, better road handling, uh, and, and so on. And, and I think that that, um, that is another sort of regulated market. So there are sort of two little trends here. Mm. You know, one is the mm. declining cost of the AI, and the second is you know, an analogous market, we're starting to see that these things, as they become economically and technologically feasible, start to become mandated. Yeah, no, it's another good parallel that you're making here between self-driving cars and the practice of medicine, for sure. Yeah. Can, can I, I want to just turn off from AI for a second. I want to share um, for, what for me has been the most amazing technology um, of the last year or so, uh, even probably more, more than AI, um, which has been GLP-1 agonists, yeah. um, Ozempic, and, uh, you know, its, it's cousins, and, you know, Generation 2. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, remarkable. So, you, you know, as my understanding is that, that um, I mean, and, and let me just sort of say this for a couple of minutes, that, you know, what they did was they, they tackled um, the circuitry uh, within within our systems that, that made us kind of desire more, right? So they, they made us feel a bit, a bit full, so we'd stop eating. But it turned out that um, one of the things that we've lost as we've become modern humans living in capitalist societies over the last 500 years has been temperance. Uh, and that idea that uh, there are feast days and the rest of the time we kind of run around pretty hungry. Um, and, and, and it seems to re reverse that as well. So it seems to be um, that it's, it's, it's pushing down cravings for nicotine and alcohol and nail biting 
and gambling and all these things on addiction uh, pathways that it seems to have these impacts around then things that doctors really, really care about, like polycystic ovary syndrome. And I think you talked about NAFLD, the the, the, the sort of spongy liver issue, um, uh, snoring and sleep apnea, uh, e- even hair loss. Um, I, I, what on earth is going on there? Yeah, well, that actually was the other point that you raised that I didn't get to in that uh, lot to unpack segment of this conversation. That's okay, because, you know, your mind is moving at, uh, you know, 150 miles an hour. Uh, But the issue here is that uh, explainability, uh, you touched on anesthetics, aspirin, metformin, the list is long of all these drugs that we don't know. And the GLP-1 family of drugs of which Ozempic, uh, pardon the pun, is a lightweight drug compared to the ones that are also already terzepatide and the triple receptors and the ones that that we're moving on to now. Um, These drugs are so potent. And it's not just, as you say, about working on our limbic system and decreasing cravings and uh, have our GI system like our stomach uh, uh, moving uh, at a much slower pace to give that sense of fullness uh, through vagal nerve afferents. But rather, there's also another amazing part of the story, which is decreasing inflammation. And this is um, mediated through the brain. Uh, And these drugs are not even the best for small molecules to get into the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. But nonetheless... You know, all the things that you touched on, uh, we have evidence that there's benefit, like you said, fertility with polycystic ovary and, uh, you know, liver. But the, this, there's going to be large trials coming out in the next year for prevention of Alzheimer's disease. Right. And, you know, we're not talking about people who are obese now. We're talking about using it in people to decrease inflammation. You know, that's another drug class, which um, is the largest drug class up until now, this one, which will be bigger than any in history, are statins. Now, statins also decrease inflammation. The famous medical term, pleiotropic, that is, they have many different effects. Well, what it really means is we don't know how the hell they're really working. Partly it's because they reduce the bad LDL cholesterol, but they too uh, have uh, this anti-inflammatory effect, but they don't uh, prevent Alzheimer's. They don't do a lot of the things that GLP-1 drugs are looking like they can have a pronounced uh, impact. So the way I look at this, this is the biggest breakthrough drug class in history. Uh, And uh, certainly we'll get into perhaps the uh, worries that this could, uh, you know, right now we're talking about injectables, not the pills yet, that might be a commitment to potentially lifelong treatment because these companies don't have a particular interest in getting people off the drugs. Um, And uh, so there are issues here, but the discovery, which I think is fascinating, you know, we knew about these drugs for 20 years. The first one of these drugs was approved in 2005. And we didn't figure out how they could be used as they are now. It took 20 years to figure that out, uh, which is kind of amazing uh, how dumb we were 
when you think about it. But no, it's very exciting. What, what, I, I mean, was that because we didn't understand the the kind of the the, the mechanism uh, of satiety and in, in back back twenty years ago? No, we had a pretty good handle on that. But what we didn't have is that you know the the first one approved uh, was. Uh, one that was very short acting. So you had to take multiple injections per day. So the, the, the push to get long acting like what we have now uh, wasn't there. But the second, which was, what if we increase the dose, you know, which is what happened here to go from glucose control right. to 20, 25% uh, body weight loss, mm. all right, which is unprecedented. Can I just jump in because I'm curious about what was what was different in the time. So back in 2005, those first um, uh, that first GLP uh, drug was, I think, targeted for type two diabetes, right? And yes, um, Bayetta, yes, right. And and so I'm just wondering about. Uh, I mean, this could be completely wrong, but but that back then the way in which the whole of the diabetes family was taken was, was, was dealt with, it was always seen as a little bit of a, uh, you know, a headache. Um, and perhaps it wasn't as prevalent um, as it is 20 years later. And I sort of wonder about the extent to which, you know, the expansion of the, the, or the expansion of the obesity problem, the expansion of type two diabetes constructs, not just bigger incentives, but actually bigger, a bigger sense of care, of how do we go about addressing this than, than perhaps we would have had, you know, 20 years ago in 2005? Well, you're bringing up, you know, some great points uh, and that probably contributes. But one of the things that we still don't understand, which is a big part of this story, is that diabetics, type 2 diabetes, um, the people that take GLP-1s, they don't have that much weight loss. Right. It's the people with pure obesity without type 2 diabetes, they have this massive, you know, weight loss. And that was another thing we still don't understand today why that happens, right? So, you know, the idea of going to the big frontier of obesity where there had never been a drug that was safe and, and had anything close to this amount of potential weight loss equating to bariatric surgery, gastric bypass, right? right? I mean, so, uh, but it, because the fixation was that it was a gut hormone related to glucose, there was not, and the people didn't lose that much weight. They, you know, lost five pounds or, you know, a few kilos, whatever, but they didn't lose like this. So the, the idea of, you know, uh, testing it, um, which only occurred in recent years, you know, last few years in obesity, um, you know, really uh, took a big jump in, uh, in the concept of, of, you know, oh, well, we didn't see this in diabetes, but maybe we'll see something different in obesity, the recognition that they're not the same condition. And, and you, you know, the, the, the danger, I think one of the challenges that we have with, with this, um, uh, this, the success of this drug is that um, it is di tackling diabetes, it is tackling uh, obesity, uh, it is making... And the prescription rates are running into the uh, millions of uh, of adults, uh, maybe the tens of millions in the U.S. I mean, so much so, I think that last year Denmark 
which is the home of Novo Nordisk, which makes us NPIC, would have gone into recession um, had uh, American physicians not been prescribing uh, as as much. Um, uh, I guess it's is it called semaglutide in in the U.S. Is that the uh, yeah sem- semaglutide? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're you're right. Novo Nordisk and Lilly are the two most valued uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world. That's right. Off, off, off the back of this, right? And and mm-hmm. it's so um, it's just it's extremely uh, alluring because it has um, all of these other um, uh, Im- impacts, right? That that it's not just you know, the waistline, which is, you know, out of control in the US, but it, it is um, anyone who's feeling a little bit addicted to to anything, even shopping, apparently, um, and these other medical um, uh, ca- uh, conditions. So one question, I suppose, is, is, is this is a very rapid diffusion of this technology into a population. It's the kind of speed of, of diffusion you normally only see actually with internet software, right? The speed yeah, with yeah. which TikTok spread, the speed with which Instagram spread. Um, Chat GPT. And, yeah. and Chat GPT, right? <laughs> and, and so, but, and that, that also does beg a question because we, we've done testing, but we haven't done, tested on a hundred million people for a, for a decade. So, so are there, you know, are there potential dragons there? Are there things that we may come back to bite us because we actually hadn't stuck people on these things for seven or eight years before we put 100 million people on them? Oh, another another really good one, Azim. And I think, um, you know, some of the concerns that were raised early, we starting to see data that there is no increase in suicide. There is no increase in uh, pancreatic cancer. These were some of the concerns that were raised. But there's always the known unknowns, like you're right. getting at, which is what happens. Uh, you know, we, we do know in some people there can be some substantial loss of muscle mass or bone density. And does that make people much more frail and, and prone to uh, falling and hip fractures? I mean, who knows where this is headed, especially the longest follow-up we have in any clinical trial is 40 months. That's nothing if you think about people taking it for decades. And, you know, just think that a lot of the people who could benefit are even, you know, teens and, and children with, with morbid obesity, which we have more of today than ever before. So this is a big problem, which, you know, has to be looked at and considered that a priori, there are substantial risk. And the other thing I just want to mention is there's been terrible exuberance that all these problems like sleep apnea, type 2 diabetes, and the list, they're all going to go away. That is ridiculous. And let me say why. First of all, the people that need these the most are the ones least likely to ever get them because of you know access and costs, especially in the United States. But moreover, look at statins. They've been around for 40 years, right? And still, they're not used in lots of people who would benefit from them. Right. Uh, so the the idea that we're going to see all these conditions uh, go away from, you know, these drugs, I mean, the potential is there to make a big dent in them. But mm. will people change? Will these drugs become at low cost, which they're certainly not? Will they become more accessible? 
will they be pills rather than injections, which are going to be, you know, much more of a way to cultivate their use? So this is, you know, this craziness that, you know, where all these conditions are just going to melt away. I just don't get it. You know, if I put on my trend watcher hat, though, I, my counter uh, to that would be about the relationship that uh, consumers now have with with new technologies and their, their access to this information. So, you know, my my sort of parents' generation, um, you know, if you came back on a on a statin or an ACE uh, inhibitor, which would have been for blood pressure, you know, it would have been somber news around the dining table that this has happened um and 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 i think that our i I, I get a sense our relationship with these types of things is is starting to change you know maybe it's because it gets normalized by people looking at things on instagram and tiktok and, and youtube and uh people you know ordinary people not not just you know the doctors and the marketing saying this thing works but it's ordinary people on reddit and insta saying this thing has worked for me or in some cases this thing hasn't hasn't worked for me because the to your point about about statins and and i think it's probably you know i'm a 52 year old guy so i'm constantly thinking about my blood pressure you know and i'm like uh so you have these sort of arbs um uh, uh as well we we are we are maybe going to look at them slightly differently because they the glp1 has always been presented um in this way of as a, it's a kind of a miracle thing with with frankly what sounds like quite limited side effects right oh you've got a bit of muscle loss you've got a bit of bone density loss relative to your your morbid obesity now i know when statins were first becoming popular at least in the uk there was a sense that it was going to take uh high cholesterol away i mean i really i i, I acknowledge that but the relationship that the the patient had with information back then 30, 40 years ago was they were the recipients and they had no way of asking questions because it was broadcast media. Whereas today there's a sense that you, you learn about all of these, these things through a kind of authentic, more authentic, more intimate, uh, you know, you know, channel. Um, uh, you know, now I, I see kimchi recipes constantly on my Instagram <laughs> feed because I express them interested in, in, having a wider variety of pickled food and, and my, my, my relationship with it feels that it's much more intimate, much more um, connected to me. And I just, I just wonder whether that's a sort of sociological change um, that is true in 2024 that wasn't true in, you know, the eighties. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. Uh, you know, I think that is part of it again, uh, you know, you touched on, you've, you kind of brought out uh, a very significant trend there. Um, you know, I think this, uh, just to go back for a second on statins, uh, the people, the, the scientists uh, who won the Nobel Prize for LDL receptor statin uh, basis, Brown and Goldstein, they wrote an editorial in Science, Heart Attacks Gone with the Century 25 years ago, okay? Right. Well, guess what? We still have plenty of heart attacks. I mean, statins have helped, but they haven't gotten rid of heart disease. Uh, and in fact, heart disease is on the way up again for the leading cause of death. It is a leading cause and it's going up. So 
let's just be a reset here that, you know, our expectations, we have a miracle breakthrough class of drugs. We have some unknowns that you've mentioned, but let's not get carried away that, you know, all these conditions, particularly one that a lot of people don't know about. I don't know um, about an exponential view audience, but this uh, liver disease, as you call it, spongy, but this, whether you call it metabolic or fatty liver disease that goes on to- Non-alcoholic uh, liver disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah non-alcoholic. It goes on to cirrhosis. It goes on to liver cancer. I mean, it's a massive epidemic. And there are a lot of people out there, I mean, we're talking about millions, who already are affected, are on that road towards a very serious liver uh, disease, who don't even know it, okay? So it isn't like- the GLP-1 drugs uh, are going to reverse it. You know, maybe what they can do is help prevent it. And again, this is already out there because our obesity epidemic is so has been so profound and so accelerated that we can't undo it with any magic here. So right. let's just make sure that we don't lose context about what is possible, uh, what is likely, uh, and what is a fantasy. You know, I think there's a good analogy that we can we can draw uh, to, to that because. It is a it's a silver bullet, right? It's a magic pill. And sometimes when we look at complex problems, people look for uh, for magic pills. And we're dealing with this in, in AI as well with, with some of the, the folk who really believe that there are significant risks of runaway AI. And they're responding with um, and I'm not thinking about the, some of the esteemed uh, scientists you and I have both spoken to, but others responded with things like all AI research should stop. We should be prepared to bomb the AI systems. Um, in, you know, in reality, you you need um, you need layers and layers and layers uh, with of knowing that each no single layer is is absolutely perfect. But the combination of all of those layers, from in the case of obesity, yes, you've got the these GLP one. Uh, drugs, but you've also got prescriptions of exercise. You've also got dietary um, awareness. You change the the food pyramid. Um, you have public health programs to educate people more clearly. You put pressure on the uh, food industry to, you know, emphasize to reduce the cost of protein and the and increase its quality. I mean, these are all the layers that you take. In the same way that when we look at AI regulation. We have to put in lots and lots of inadequate layers, which together, I think, get us to somewhere where we say this technology can be can be safe, it can be beneficial. And, and really critically, I think the companies involved in it know what the parameters are, right? Because that's what they, they, they need. And I think one of the reasons why the pharmaceutical industry, which has essentially makes really dangerous products and has done for 100 years, is so successful and saves so many lives. It's because you can't sell radium cough syrup anymore. Um, and so, so the, the, the silver bullet thinking, which I think you describe around the, the, the GLP-1 agonists, I think also pervades my domain when people think about AI, either as being a really, really titanic threat or as being the thing that will solve every economic problem. Well, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's never that, right? There, is, there are right. layers of systems and there is hard work to be done. I like that. I mean, I think um, anytime you have something that's so potent that it has two-edged sword type features, we have to keep in mind, uh, you know, the type of expectations 
um, the, you know, the concerns about the, the, the potential harms. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the same as genome editing, you know, it's the same kind of story. You know, genome editing is the biggest breakthrough in life science in our, uh, in our generation. Uh, but it's just like what you said with very powerful drugs like GLP-1 and, and AI, they're kind of all in the same um, category of just transformative, but you don't want to just think it's a, 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 a one-way, uh, you know, a single path of success. There, there's always bumps in the road. I, I, one of the bumps in the road that we faced, of course, was it was a big bump. Um, it was like a really catastrophically <laughs> large hole was COVID. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, we I think many, many people thank you for all the work you did um, uh, on keeping people informed on on COVID. Um, you know, I, I wrote about the other dynamics, uh, the sort of the, the political, geopolitical, economic mm. Um, uh, impacts and how people might might respond, but of course, one of the the, the, the beauties that came out of it was um, was mRNA, um, and the you know I think you wrote that um, you know the Carico Wiseman breakthrough is a remarkable foundation for new vaccines, um, and the the idea that we could extend mRNA to preserve human health in the future. And you, you, beautiful line, let's hope it won't take another pandemic to add to mm. that exceptional success story. Um, I, I mean, you know, crises are great for, for creativity. And the question is, um, how does one ma manage that, that type of pandemic thinking, that type of pandemic mindset where it drives creativity? Um, uh, and also actually, you know, really focused most of us on good social pro-social outcomes um what, what what do you think it would take in in your domain to, to 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 do that to give that kind of pandemic level thinking that has brought us mrna vaccines and and take that beyond yeah um you know of course it's not only mrna but that was kind of the centerpiece because uh they were out of the box so quickly 10 months after the virus of SARS-CoV-2 was first sequenced. Uh, and they are the platform, and it's not just the mRNA, but also the nanoparticles uh, for delivery uh, that has been given now to, you know, more than a billion people um, and uh, has done such a, an important role in preventing, you know, severe COVID, no less before Omicron, even preventing infections and spread. But um, as you got to there, Azim, the uh, platform uh, is now the basis for not just pathogens like uh, Epstein-Barr virus and obviously, you know, uh, RSV and uh, mm -hmm. across the board of, of various pathogens that we weren't able to previously um, have good defense with our uh, vaccine-induced immunity, but now cancer, neurodegenerative diseases and, you know, uh, autoimmune, tolerogenic vaccines. This is actually kind of amazing that you could give a vaccine to turn off the immune system specifically in people who were destined to have type 1 diabetes or multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis. That's emerging as a possibility. Uh, and the other thing is that we're using the same mRNA nanoparticle to deliver uh, genome editing. Okay, and uh, we're doing it for cancer, for uh, engineering um, uh, the uh, immune cells. And so 
the diversity of the use of this platform mm -hmm. is just extraordinary. Now, one other thing that I know um, is that we don't do enough of. You're very familiar with this Operation Warp Speed, mm. where the government, you know, put out, you know, whatever, $15 billion to de-risk companies to accelerate because of existential threat of our people. And, uh, <laughs> well, that was a trivial investment to how much was saved, but we have only, a, we have a one-off Operation Warp Speed. So your point about it, the pandemic showed that if, if you make a bet, you can win big and save, you know, perhaps trillions of dollars, right? In uh, all the people that would have uh, been hospitalized and lost lives and uh, everything else. So this is, I think, something that uh, a lesson learned, but we're not doing anything about it. There hasn't been another OWS. Is there going to be another OWS? We have tools now we've never had before, but we're not making big bets. And like, for example, for COVID, we desperately need uh, nasal or oral vaccines to prevent infection so we can truly have an exit strategy. But there is there's just little bets. There's no nothing like what got us quickly out of the woods. That would have taken many years, in fact, but it only took 10 months uh, because of, of that. This is a yeah. fascinating uh, observation. Actually, it's an, it's an entirely separate podcast and, re and research team. But I, I, I want to just try to summarize that thinking because there, there are some lessons from the, the technology um, industry as well, which is, um, you know, effectively in, in this short discussion, right, we've talked about a whole range of um, really quite interesting uh, new scientific breakthroughs that are turning into um, technologies for health. So we've talked about AI. We've talked about GLP-1 um, agonists as a very kind of, and their cousins specific class, these sort of triple action ones, uh, class of therapeutics. We've talked about, you know, gene editing, which you said was the most powerful, important breakthrough in life science. And of course, we're talking about mRNA and you use a key word there, the platform, um, which of course is, you know, it's, it's, it's music to a technologist's ears. Um, and the idea that through this, um, you know, d delivery mechanism, we can tackle, um, you know, we could switch off circuits in the brain that, that f to, to, to tackle type one diabetes, or we can um, deal with neurodegenerative uh, diseases or tackle really difficult brain cancers, you know, the glioblastomas that we can't, can't get to. Um, so there's this remarkable, actually very, very broad set of powerful technologies. Um, and, and perhaps the life sciences hasn't seen that breadth arrive at such in such a short period of time in, in, in history. And you know what what happened in 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 the tech industry was the you know the 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 importance in the early days of of government actually almost by accident, right, being there as the buyer of first resort of these technologies like the GPS system, like the the internet um and, and i think there is a there is a public there is a, a a completely new class of thinking that's required um by the industry to go off and say we're going to go quicker on bigger bets um and, and we're going to abandon the spreadsheets that we've used to evaluate our pipeline of drugs and we know where they are in the various stage gates of of, of approval um 
and that requires a, a really fundamentally different different mind shift. But it it is a role, one where government can actually actively play a role. And and a really uh, good example, I think, is the IRA, um, the Inflation mm. Reduction Act, mm. where um, the government is effectively pushing expensive technologies down the learning curve so they can become cheaper and, uh, and more reliable through the use of tailored subsidies that will get removed after a while. Um, and, and it's interesting because I, I haven't come across that sort of idea applied to medicine and healthcare, but, but I mean, you've left the, we've left the best to last in a way because I think there is something there. There is a kind of a public-private intersection around this range of new technologies and there are analogies both from climate change, climate technologies and, and other places that show just the kind of policy interventions that can that can work. And, and you know, I'm not sure I would be very optimistic that US politics might allow it, but we're likely to have a change in government in the UK in the next year or two. And you know, maybe there's an opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, I know having done um, the NHS review a few years back. Uh, which was a really eye-opening experience to see the inner workings of NHS and plan for the future with AI and the workforce. Um, the, the, the UK has very deliberately wants to be uh, a or the leader in AI, in healthcare, just as it is the world leader in genomics, right. unquestionably in human genomics. And there isn't a day that goes by today, Azim, where the UK Biobank is coming out with another, from that data set, That's another amazing. new important yeah. find. I mean, it, it is simply amazing. So there, you know, what's amazing to me, again, is the UK makes these investments and, you know, they say, well, there's not money, there's no money, but they do make big bets. And when they made, when they got much, uh, amplified impact for the smallness of the governmental uh, investment, but right. transformative uh, for the world of medicine. Uh, and, you know, this idea of putting money into a big bet uh, of the UK in AI and medicine so that the workforce expansion, which is unchecked, not just in the UK, but everywhere, can right. be blunted. Uh, and that this bet on technology to enhance medicine to, you know, not just, um, you know, the uh, um, outcomes, but, um, you know, a much more efficient, much more productive, uh, every aspect of medicine be improved. So I give the government their credit. Uh, the resources, you know, may be more constrained, uh, but the outcome right. is exemplary. And the world doesn't give enough credit uh, to the, in my view, to NHS's accomplishments. Uh, well, we we love it dearly uh, here, um, Eric. I mean, it's a, it's everyone's favorite thing in in the country. Um, I, I think we should well, let let's end on just like, talking about our wish lists because I th I think it's still early enough in the year for us to wish for for twenty twenty four. And maybe if you go first, which would be what would be your number one uh, item on your twenty twenty four health health wish list? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess uh, you know the idea that we do uh, big uh, validation studies of AI quickly, you know, rigorous, uh, transparent, none of the stuff where, you know, it's proprietary and it can't be reviewed by the medical community. I want to see the validation phase go into high gear because in, in the U.S. there's 650 
uh, cleared or approved medical AI algorithms. And only a very limited number, I mean, very limited number, have any data that the medical community can review, no less uh, are they, you know, right. rigorous uh, studies. So that's what I'd like to see in 2024 is a real push to do high quality research so that we can get the compelling evidence to start to move on this to get to, you know, the implementation phase, which has been minimal so far. Yeah, I mean, that's a really that's a really great point. There could be so many gold nuggets that we're not able to, uh, you know, share around. So so I guess my my number one is um, a wish is is probably harder than harder than yours. I agree with the one that you've you've uh, agreed. And, um, you know, within within my the domain of, of AI and technology, I think one of the things that has, has broken down has been reasoned and civil discourse. Uh, mm. around uh, what the risks might be or might not be, whether the technology path is, is, a, is a sensible one or, or, or not. And that has created, I think, the, um, the wrong kind of creative friction for sort of generative, collaborative working. I mean, you know, scientists should disagree. We want them to disagree. If they didn't disagree, they would all be members of some, you know, theological institution. But the... <laughs> The, the, the nature of the disagreement and the way in which it's sort of percolated, I think, has taken us away from what could be the real benefits uh, of AI and the ways in which we deliver those benefits in a safe way to, um, you know, people right across the world, not just in the UK, not just in in the US. So for me, it's it's a it's maybe a, an appeal for some civil, some more greater civility, some more temperate language, um, and more uh, kind of interdisciplinary working. I, I think you will have more luck uh, with your wish than I will for mine. Well, I actually, I, would, I love your wish. Um, I love to get back to the collegiality and civility that we used to enjoy uh, yeah. years ago. It's gotten savage and toxic now and divisive, and it's really unfortunate. Um, I, 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 I hope somehow your wish could come true. Well, we're at the start of the year, um, Eric. We've got New Year's resolutions um, to to adhere to, uh, and I'm really glad we got a chance to connect and maybe share some ideas for both the Ground Truths audience and the Exponential View uh, audience. Uh, this is so much fun. Uh, thanks again, and Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you, and what a fun convergence discussion of our areas of interest. And I hope uh, our listeners of both uh, will will enjoy it as much as I have.